0: Father, we're thankful that You've brought us together again on this Lord's Day. And I pray for our study this morning in the book of Hebrews, that You'll continue to open our minds to perceive the wonders of Your law, Your truth. And I pray, God, that where we still struggle to come to terms with what You have said and what You are saying, that You will give us patience um, to continue to strive after hearing Your Word well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I've made a decision. Um, Yeah, I think um, I haven't talked with Gil about this, but I'll probably be off a few weeks, um, and then I'll be back on at some point, and I'll continue Hebrews. I imagine it'll be in May or maybe even middle April. So, whatever the next series is, um, because we have two more weeks, I believe, after this one. Uh, we'll continue in Hebrews and 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 maybe sort of knock it out. That's allowed me to breathe a little bit more easily, if that's okay with you all. Um, so we're still in chapter 5 today, and I wanted to read this to you. If you remember from our talk last week and then the week before, um, that the the author of the Hebrews left us in a rather disconcerting spot in chapter 4, verse 13. Before him, no creatures hidden, all are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. So we're left in a position of complete vulnerability before the all-seeing eye of God. That's, that's where we are. So where are we left in that reality? We're left, verse 14, with the confidence and the assurance that we have a high priest. That We have a high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who actually holds our confession for us who empathizes with us, who prays for us, who intercedes on our behalf. And because of that, verse verse 16 of chapter 4, we're allowed to come into the very throne room of God with confidence. That's why we can go into God's throne room with confidence, not because of a look inward, but because of a recognition that we come into the very Holy of Holies behind the curtain, behind the veil, because we are found safely hid in Jesus. That gives us the confidence to draw to draw near. So, when we go into chapter 5, which I technically didn't get into last week, there's a fuller exposition of this particular priest that we're talking about here, Jesus, the Son of God. I want to read uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 for you. And so, we'll sort of buckle in and listen to this. I'm, I'm reading from the RSV... Um, I tend to like the RSV, by the way, as a translation, but my, my very um, non-formal theory on Bible translations, when people ask me which one should I use, I tend to answer whatever one's on your shelf. You know, just grab it and read it. Um, but uh, I do like the RSV. Anyway, ch- chapter 5 begins this way. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Let's so think about that here. It's a claim about the high priest, number one, is chosen among men. Now, of course, we realize in the Old Testament tradition, the high priest was chosen from a particular tribe, the Levitical tribe. So this high priest is chosen to act on behalf of men in relation to God. That's the classic definition of a priest. A priest stands as an intermediary between humanity and God. So here you have the priest who's standing as an intermediary offering sacrifices for sins. And he can do so gently because when he deals with people who are ignorant and who go away, the wayward, the backward. Why? Because he himself knows what it is to be be sought with weakness so because of this he's bound verse 3 to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for those of the people and one does not take the honor upon himself but he is called by God just as Aaron was called so let's talk about these first four verses here just just a little bit um, for those of you who remember um, from the book of Leviticus and I realize that Leviticus is a it's a weird book, right? I mean, that's the, a lot of people check out on their Bible reading. Their, you know, New Year's resolution: read through the Bible in the year. Um, Genesis, Exodus, fascinating books. Leviticus. I'm done, right? So I'm, I'm out. Um, Leviticus is a book that's filled with regulations. It begins; the whole book begins with an intense discussion of the various kinds of sacrifices that are to be offered in the temple. You have grain offerings, you have guilt offerings, you have sin offerings. And all of these offerings come together. They're daily rituals in the life of the temple. But they come together or they move tyrannically toward one yearly sacrifice that is the, the most significant day within the Jewish um, liturgical calendar. And that's, of course, Yom or Yom Kippur, uh, the day of Kafar, the day of covering, the day of atonement. And that term, "kaffar" is the technical term in the Old Testament for atoning. It's being covered. Uh, you're being washed. You're being cleansed. And it's a fascinating ritual in Leviticus 16. Now, I mean, you have the priest, again, appointed, um, called. There, there's no election campaign to be the priest, right? The high priest is called by God once a year to go into the very Holy of Holies, and when he moves into the holy of holies, he goes to do this blood ritual um, uh, uh, to, to expiate and to cleanse the temple. Now, so let's talk about this for a little bit because it's worth having some sense of what's going on in this in this temple ritual. And it reminded me this morning. I've had some conversations with um, I don't think she's here today, Fran Cade, um, about um, the complexity of communicating into the modern world some of these um sacrificial dynamics that are so ingredient to our weekly worship. You re- You realize, don't you, that we just prayed twice in the last 20 minutes, right? Or 30 minutes. We together prayed twice. Number one, looking forward to drinking blood together. And then afterward, thanking God that we just got to drink blood together. That's weird, isn't it? I mean, you think about how one. How does one? Uh, again, the Leviticus stuff was before me this morning, so I was especially tuned in to our liturgy. But we thank God that together we, by the Spirit, drank Jesus' blood together. And that's a that's a heavy claim, and it's a hard claim to communicate on some level. The significance of that in a world that's really a very, at least in the modern Western world, very post-sacrificial. I don't know what you think about Old Testament religion. And frankly, what we think about New Testament religion as well, but it's a, it's a bloody reality. Um, I, I can remember uh, Frank Limehouse in one of my more memorable Christmas Eve services here. He did a, a sermon about the manger, and I can't remember how he quite worded it, but he said something about if you, if you love the scene of the manger, but you don't see the blood and the hay, in effect, then you misunderstood what this, what this uh, season is about. Um, it's It's bloody. Um, once a year, the, in this atoning ritual, the high priest would go in and he would take a, a, a lamb that had been slaughtered and he would smear um, the, the corners of the mercy seat, the, the mercy throne, um, the Ark of the Covenant on the side. So he, he'd, he'd do that on the horns of the, of, the, um, of the Ark of the Covenant. And in doing that, he was bringing ritual purification back to the temple. In other words, even though there were daily sacrifices that were going on again and again, there was an aggregate reality about unconscious sin among the people that built up over time and made unfeigned worship between God and His people problematic because sin had built up into the temple. Why? Well, because people like you and me are there. And so when the priest goes in, the priest is putting this blood into the Holy of Holies and it's a washing activity. It's an oblation, the kind of terms that we use in our liturgy as well. It's a cleansing activity that washes out the temple, makes it pure again. Why? So that worship can happen again. It's making it pure so that worship can be maintained in the temple. And then there's that next ritual, which is a weird one. Um, They get two... This is beforehand, actually, but they had the two goats. One is going to be used for the sacrifice that purifies the temple when the priest goes in and wipes the corners of the mercy seat because we know that for the priest there's no meeting of God in any other place than the mercy seat where blood is present. And then the other ritual is with this other goat that they then place all of the burden and the guilt of their sin. And this is significant. One of the favorite or favored metaphors in the Old Testament for sin is burden. And the term that's often used in Hebrew in the Old Testament for the forgiveness of our sins is a, is a Hebrew word, um, I, I tell my students this to help them kind of remember, it's a word nasa, like nasa. This is how I tell my students to remember it. It lifts off, right? That's how I tell them to remember I get paid a lot of money to give them little nuggets like that. Uh, it, it lifts off. Um, forgiveness is the lifting off of guilt, the lifting off of the burden and the weight of sin. So think about this. There's an aggregate reality that had occurred because sin had built up in the temple to such an effect that worship of God had been made problematic and the temple needed to be cleansed, number one. So the pollution of sin had to be removed. But number 2 the burden and the guilt of sin on people had to be removed as well and that was this second ritual ritual with the goat and they placed their burdens the priest places his hand on the back of this goat and then they send this goat this is weird out to Azazel don't really know what Azazel is i mean you read on this Azazel could be a demon out in the wilderness um it could be uh um Uh, Just uh, another term for the wilderness itself. We're not really sure. But what we know is that goat leaves the central part of the city and goes outside into the wilderness, removing the burden of their guilt as well. So there was a purification that brought about clean and pure worship before God. But there was also the burden and the guilt of sin on God's people that had been removed and placed out into the wilderness. um, And they did this ritual year in and year out. So this is what he's referring to here in uh, Hebrews chapter 5. He makes sacrifices for sins. Uh, the high priest can do this because he recognizes that he himself is in need of sacrifice as he goes in and makes atonement for himself and then makes atonement for the, for the people as well. But like you know, you can anticipate this. The author to the Hebrews is showing points of comparison between Jesus and these various figures, angels and Moses. But he's also going to show points of radical distinction as well. And that's where we go into the next few verses. Verse 5. So like Aaron, verse 5, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. That's a claim from Psalm chapter 2. Verse 6, and as he says in another place, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now that's significant here, right? How is Jesus like the priesthood that comes before him? He's like Aaron in the fact that Jesus did not appoint himself to this task, but he was called to this task, he was elected to this task by his father. Now, the old Reformed theologians talked about it, and I I like these terms very much. They talked about the covenant of redemption or the, the pact of redemption that was made in God's own very triune self from eternity past. God's identity, God's eternal triune relationship between Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in God's own inter-Trinitarian communication, which again, I know our, our brains begin to bleed out of our ears when we start talking about the Trinity. God is one, um, and there are three persons. Is God the Father fully God or just part of the divinity? He's fully God. Jesus is fully God. The Spirit is fully God. And yet there's still only one God. It's just, you gotta just sleep on it. I mean, it's, it's hard but in this intertrinitarian communication between the father and the son and the spirit in their shared divine essence we recognize both here and in other places of the new testament that god decided within himself god made a decision within his own very life that he would pour out his own love outside of himself in two significant ways number 1 he created the world that is the overflow of God's own inter life that breaks out into the world and worlds come into existence. But the second thing that he decided from eternity past is that he was going to redeem. He's going to be a redeemer. I've appointed you to be the redeemer. Um, Jesus Christ, as we read in Ephesians, as we'll see elsewhere in Hebrews, was slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, the logic works this way in the New Testament. It's not Jesus arrives on the scene and God the Father decides, well, what institution am I going to use from the past and my relationship with Israel uh, to demonstrate my salvation to the world? Oh, let's go with sacrifice. We'll choose that one. It, that's not the logic. The logic is completely the reverse. Jesus of Nazareth, the lamb slain from the before the foundation of the world, that is the archetype. That is the eternal archetype and decision of God that made its impression onto the world of ancient Israel in their various rituals of sacrifice. That's the mirror in the Old Testament that's reflecting God's eternal decision to send a priest, his own son, his very likeness, his very image, Hebrews chapter 1, to come into the world and to redeem. And how to redeem? To redeem by being both priest and victim at the same time. So he's like Aaron in that he wasn't appointed. But he's unlike Aaron in the fact that um, he's from the tribe of Melchizedek. Or not even the tribe. He's he's a priest like Melchizedek. Um, Well, Let's read on here because we'll come back to Melchizedek. Verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him From death. And he was heard for his godly fear. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. All right, let's talk about this. This is a text that's complicated. I'm not even sure why I'm saying that. They all are here. Um, But this is a text that I think raises some interesting issues. In the days of his flesh, all right, we can't get into a text like this without bringing theological grammar to bear. In the days of his flesh. Now, we already know, don't we, from Hebrews 1, 1 1-4, the identity of Jesus as the very eternal Son of God. He's the very image. He's the very character. He's the very icon of God's own divine essence. So there's no question in the book of Hebrews that Jesus of Nazareth, the second person of the Trinity, is fully God. But there's a claim here being made in this particular text about what it means for Jesus to be human. John chapter 1, verse 14, "...and the Word became flesh." Now, this is tricky business. I mean, there are rocks to be crashed on. There's dragons uh, down this road here, right? Because we want to affirm two things equally. Number one, we want to affirm there was never a time when the second person of the Trinity was not. There was never a time when the Logos, when the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, did not exist. There's never a time. But there was a time from the standpoint of created time when the second person of the Trinity was not man. He took on something that he did not have before. Um, Philippians chapter 2 said, Let this mind be in you that was also in Jesus. Well, what is that mind? That he didn't consider it himself um, uh, uh, um, to grasp after the, the glory of God, but he took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself in the form of a servant, even taking on human flesh. So Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, takes on something that he did not have before. He takes on flesh. And in the taking on of flesh, our redemption is at hand. The fact that the second person of the Trinity enters into the world in flesh is the fact that you and I can claim with confidence the salvation of our God. He's come into the world to take on humanity so that he can elevate humanity itself back into the very life of God himself. So he comes in. And what what did we learn about Jesus in the flesh? We learn here that Jesus learns things. Isn't that something? Jesus learns things in the flesh. And what was it that he learned in the flesh? He learned obedience. Isn't that something? I mean, I don't know if we think about uh, predicating the terms of the verb to obey on Jesus. But he obeyed. He learned obedience. Well, where did he learn obedience? He learned obedience in a couple of places in this text. Number one, on the anvil of suffering. And number two, in the throes of prayer. He learned obedience on the anvils of suffering. And he learned obedience in the throes of prayer. Longing, groaning, tears poured out to the Father. It's as if the tradition from the Garden of Gethsemane is is impressing itself onto the author of the Hebrews here. He's taking us into the very Garden itself. And what do we see before us? A scene, frankly, that's uncomfortable. I mean, here is God in human flesh on His knees in earnestness before the Lord. So that His... I don't know what this does, but in some ways His prayers are so intense that His sweat coagulates and becomes... Blood. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan, American Puritan, um, I have a sermon of his that he did on that one verse in Luke. And his sweat became like great drops of blood. Beautiful sermon. Edwards says, One drop of that blood was a deluge, an ocean of love, able to swallow up the whole world. But what do we see him doing there? We see him praying. We see him struggling. We see him... Asking and requesting. We see Him uncertain about what is coming before. Anxiety even about what's coming before. We see Jesus in His full humanity. But what we see Jesus awful also doing in the garden and elsewhere is turning His face like flint to the calling of God on His life, the calling of His Father on His life, to suffer in obedience. He comes out of the garden He makes his way to the passion, and he suffers there for you and for me. What does it mean here? And let me read this to you, this particular verse. Although he was a son, verse 8. So what's being claimed here? He was the son of God himself. Although he was that, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He came, in the words of Peter O'Brien, to appreciate fully what conforming to God's will involves. He learned obedience. Verse 9, And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Being made perfect. is that something? I think we need to be careful here and make a distinction when we hear this term perfect. It's not a claim to moral perfection here. We don't, I, I don't think that's what the author to the Hebrews is saying. Well, I think the author to the Hebrews is claiming is that the perfection that Jesus achieved through learning obedience on the anvils of suffering and in the throes of prayer, um, the, the, the perfection that came to Him was a vocational perfection. Not a moral perfection, but a vocational one. His suffering... His prayers, his struggle with God, his confronting the will of God in various encounters of his own life and walking through each one of those encounters with obedience, his learning all of that made him a fit high priest for you and for me. It perfected him as a human for the office that he he holds even now before the throne of God as he lifts us up in prayer to the Father and by the Spirit. He was made perfect for his office as a high priest because he learned what it was to suffer, what it was to pray, and what it was to be obedient in the face of all of the vicissitudes of life. That's our high priest. That's the one who stands before the throne. A one who, the one who was a man. Fully man. Now, I think at various phases in the history of the church, you know, we, the, the emphasis tends to go one way or the other. Right? Um, in the early church, the emphasis tended to be, uh, dependent on, on who you were, on his humanity at the expense of his divinity. And then you had others that emphasized his divinity at the expense of his humanity. But what the scriptures forced on us again and again is not to downplay either one of those over against the other as we try to come to terms with who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Jesus is a single person, he's a subject. He's not a schizoid who thinks on one half of his brain, human, the other half of his brain, divine. He is one person. But at the same time, that one person is in two natures, fully God, fully man. And that's about all we can really claim. Matter of fact, in the Council of Chalcedon in the 5th century, when they try to come to terms with how do we articulate our understanding of the relationship between the humanity and the divinity of Jesus... The way in which the Council of Chalcedon advanced this notion was by negation. Not necessarily making positive claims. This is what it means for Jesus to be fully God and fully man. What they did was they, they advanced the argument by negation. Fully God, fully man. Without separation, without division, without distinction. They list these withouts. They go by, by the process of negation. It's not this, it's not this, it's not this, and it's not that. Which, by the way, is a good way of going about some of these theological distinctions, right? Instead of always claiming positively what's being claimed, we just say, we're in the realm of mystery here. We're talking about God and God's relationship to humanity. So let's just say, it's not this, it's not that, it's not that, and it's not that. Next page, right? So we're claiming here, the claim here that the author of the Hebrews is making, that Jesus in his flesh learned obedience, it was something that in his divinity he never learned. He didn't have to. But in taking on human flesh and becoming like you and me, he learned obedience on the anvils of suffering and in the throes of prayer. And he did this, he says, God says, being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now I want to hold off on Melchizedek because chapter 7 In its entirety is given to an exposition of Melchizedek, but this is one of those strange figures. When I start hearing the word Melchizedek, I don't know how you feel about it. When I hear Melchizedek, smoke and fog seems to come onto the scene, right? I mean, who's Melchizedek? No idea, right? I mean, Abraham just Coming back, wiping the the blood off of his sword, just came back from a battle that he did. And as he's coming back, this king priest from uh, Melchizedek uh, comes and he blesses him, and and then he's gone. That's it. Who is Melchizedek? Without doubt, in the history of Christian interpretation, Melchizedek, Melchizedek is understood as a Christophany or a pre-incarnation in appearance of Jesus or the second person of the Trinity um, to, to Abraham. And that's quite likely the case. I'm, I'm okay with a reading like that as well. But if we just allow the text to do its own work, Melchizedek is a mysterious figure um, without origin and without ending. We don't know where he came from, and we don't know where he went. He shows up, and that's it. And I think that's what's being claimed here from uh, the author of the Hebrews. Uh, Jesus is not from the line of Aaron. He's from the line of Melchizedek. His beginning and his ending, it's a mystery. Why? Because we know that he's a son. He's the son, but he's also a human who learned obedience. We'll come back uh, to Melchizedek. Let me check my time. Oh, I wanted to get in chapter 6 today. we might have to wait on that. I want you to hear what the next part is. Verse 11 and 12, 13. And uh, then we'll stop for a few questions, maybe. About this we have much to say to you. Now this should not be a surprise. Why? Because this is how the author to the Hebrews is crafting his argument. He makes a claim. Jesus is better than angels. And then he gives them a challenge. Jesus is better than Moses. And then he gives them a challenge. And now he's saying, Jesus is like Aaron, but he's different than Aaron because he's from Melchizedek. And now he's about to give them a challenge. Um, It's... I don't know. I I, I live in a parenting world. It's kind of just the way in which we talk to our kids, you know. Talk, 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 moral reflection, reflection on life. By the way, I don't really see that going on in your life right now, right? That's that kind of thing. This is what the author of the Hebrews is doing. Verse 11. I have so much more to say to you about Melchizedek, and he's going to get back to it in chapter 7. But then he challenges them. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you really need someone to teach you again the first principles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Now for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their faculties trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. Now... um. What's happened here? Well, the author of the Hebrews is saying that I really want to talk to you more about these profound mysteries about Melchizedek and the priesthood of Jesus, but you've become dull in your hearing. This is the um, apostle becoming apostolic. This is the the apostle becoming prophetic and speaking directly into their lives. I mean, at this point in time, especially their second-generation Christians, You should have an established teaching life in your community, but you don't have that right now um, because you've become dull of hearing and you need to be taught again the elemental things. The stoicheia is the word there. It's the, um, the ABCs of your faith. It needs to be taught to you again. And by the way, it's not as if the author here is saying those things are unessential. Once you learn those, then you go on to the next phase. He's not talking about some deeper mystical life here that you move on from the base, the elemental things, and then you go to higher, higher, higher things, leaving all those elemental things behind. He's talking about building on a sure foundation of the gospel. He says we should be building on the foundation of the gospel, but we can't do that right now because um, you need to be taught again the first principles. The elemental things. He's not apologizing for teaching the milk. But he's saying, at this point in time, I would have thought that we would have been able to build on a ready and sure foundation. But we're having to go back to the ABCs and talk about the elemental things of our faith again. So it's a real challenge here. Now, one commentator that I read, a fellow named Harold Attridge, Attridge says he thinks this is a rhetorical device. The rhetorical device is you've become dull of hearing, you're not able to discern with the understood reaction being, oh no, we're not, we want to hear, right? And that may be the case. In other words, there could be a subtle jab here to, to draw the reader in. You're not really ready for this, right? You need to go back to milk and the reaction would be, actually, no, we are ready. We want to hear what it is that you have to say. That's a possible rendering, Okay. But I think we'll just stick with the basic challenge, and the basic challenge here is at this point in time, I'm wanting to build on the gospel towards spiritual maturity, and we'll talk about this all next week. But I want to build on the gospel towards spiritual maturity, and not just have to go back and rehearse the elemental things again and again. I want that foundation to be there so that we can build on it. Question: I'll just wet your appetite for this for next week. Well, what is spiritual maturity? What does it mean to be spiritually mature for the author to the Hebrews here? He's going to tell us at the end of chapter 6. And the answer in a very basic way is steadfast and persevering faith. I want to encourage you to steadfast and persevering faith. You've become dull in your senses. You've become dull in your in your hearing, you've become laxadaisical and apathetic. And, and quite frankly, it's something that the Bible takes quite seriously. You know, we tend to think Old Testament God kind of mean, New Testament God, he's kind of nice and happy, until you read Jesus walking through the churches in Revelation two and two and three. I mean, Jesus walks through and he tells these churches, like the church at Ephesus, you've left your first love, and if you don't go back to your first love, if you don't come back to me, then I'm gonna snuff out your candle. I mean, that's a hard word, right? I think that's what the author of the Hebrews is saying. He's bringing all these warnings to bear to say, listen, the elemental things are foundational to your faith. But I want to grow you and encourage you in the spirit towards spiritual maturity. And what is that? It's a persevering faith. It's a persevering faith that looks to our high priest who learned what it is to obey where in suffering, on the anvils of suffering and in the throes of prayer. I think the author of the Hebrews is saying, I'm calling you to walk down that road, to learn what it is to obey in faith, on the anvils of suffering and in the throes of prayer. A persevering faith. A faith that will bring you to the end through all the various and complex vicissitudes of life. I'll stop here. I'm convinced, you know, I, I, I've talked about this again and again. I'm sorry for repeating myself, but I'm more, I was talking about this with my wife this morning. I'm just more and more convinced that our whole understanding of salvation, especially for some of us who've come from a, you say a prayer and you got saved sort of thing, right? Any of you from that background? I am, right? You say a prayer, you get that prayer said, you're good to go. We'll see you at the pearly gates, right? I just don't think the Bible has any notion of that. Right? Why? Not because it's a challenge to the simplicity of the gospel. That is, how does one come to faith? One comes to faith by believing in the finished work of Jesus on my behalf. That that's true and it's true for me. That's the gospel, period. But the challenge I think that we get again and again in a book like Hebrews, and I think Paul is rife with this as well, is, and that is an ongoing dynamic of the Christian life from the beginning to the middle, to the end. One of my favorite hymns is Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. You begin with the claim about the gospel. Now how does Rock of Ages end? While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyelids close in death. It carries you through all of the... We talked about this last week. From beginning to the end. And I think what the author to the Hebrews is doing with some highly volatile and possibly hyperbolic language... Because he's challenging this dull audience to a faith that can persevere unto the end. All the way to the end. Right? Well, I can take a question. I don't want to be made a liar. One question. Anybody want to fire something out? As long as it's not a hard one. Anybody? We're going to do chapter 6. I had all my notes for it today. we just going to get to it. We'll do chapter 6 next week. This is probably the most controversial text in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter six, verses four to eight. What happens to apostates, right? Well, that's not good news. So we'll talk about that next week. All right. Let me pray for us. Lord, bless us as we go our way, separate ways. And, And Father, I pray that you would help us not to grow dull of hearing like that generation did in the wilderness. But that Lord, you would exercise faith in our hearts to believe, a persevering belief. Lord, that doesn't look to our own moral qualities, but that looks to You, our High Priest, who knows what it is to suffer, who knows what it is to pray, and who knows what it is to live in faithfulness in the midst of all of that. You did that for us. Give us the hope and the confidence, Lord, to cling to You through all the complexities of life, Lord, because the Gospel is true.